welcome back to Getting to the Top, where I interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey in hopes of inspiring you on your leadership journey and that we learn something together about what we're all doing here and why the life that we lead should be important. So today I have the honor of interviewing Rhea Salter. She's an attorney, an activist, an author with a focus on energy and climate justice. She's the founder of of the Energy Justice Law and Policy Center and a member of the New York State Climate Action Council. She serves on many boards and is also a professor at Cardzo Law School, the author of Energy Justice and a host with Facing Future TV, where she develops climate programs, including from COP26 and COP27. And that's where I happen, I had the great honor of meeting her. And um, she happens to have the auspicious honor of being the only person I know who testified before Congress and <laughs> went viral as a result. So we will talk about that. But welcome, welcome, Maria. Please, please take this opportunity to introduce yourself. Thank you so very much, Raquel. It was a wonderful honor to meet you at COP27. So yes, I'm an attorney. I'm an activist. I'm a, a mom, a single mom of a college-age um, student. Um, and yes, I focus my work on um, energy justice. My training is in energy regulation. Um, I went to, I practiced before becoming an activist. I spent um, almost five years in the private sector as a regulatory associate for the Wall Street law firm of Dewey and LaBeouf. And from there went to do nonprofits and now really do focus on justice and, you know, um, you know, demonstrating and, and being in the streets. So I just mentioned that because it's a, you know, it's a life journey and I am delighted to be here. I'm really, really glad to have this chance to chat because, you know, I, I wondered when I saw all of the things that you've done and all of the things that you continue to do that, that truly inspires me, you know, like, how did you, how did you unlock that potential? Where did it start? When did you first realize that you were going to be this formidable leader? Uh, thank you so much for that question. And um, I almost, I, you know, I really, I want to answer so often, you know, it has it always comes from that center of who I am as a woman and as a person and what my values are. And so, and I want folks to understand that um, I think that a lot of us, especially Black women, especially women of color, who come up with this understanding of, you know, what some of these justice, justice struggles are from a personal perspective, we're, we have this, you know, fire in the belly, this this passion and this desire to make a difference, but also to do it in a way that, you know, helps each other, helps other women. We're concerned about children, concerned about families, you know, concerned about, you know, human rights. And so I really just want folks to feel and understand and identify with that, that feeling that so many of us have. That's what really, and we need to keep listening to it that's what guides you. That's what's going to move you forward. And um, it is challenging, you know, to to lead with those values. And um, and there's always there's a time and a season. Sometimes, you know, there's a time for being in school, <laughs> a time for working for, you know, the government, a time for working outside of government on this journey. So that really is where I'll start with that from. Is that something I think so many of us can identify with? Definitely. So when when was it that you sort of chose law as the thing that you would pursue? You know, I'm actually a second career lawyer. Um, really? And was, indeed. I did. And this is another thing I like to, to share and be open about, because 
um, I didn't go to law school until I was 33. And I had just broken up. I was married, but I had just broken up. uh, My marriage had just broken up and I had a three-year-old child. And I was a single mom. And that's when I decided that it was time for me to go to law school. <laughs> because I think I, I had done different things. I had worked in um, middle school programs. I'd worked in media. And I said, I looked around at myself and I said, you know what? Who, who am I supposed to be? Who do I want to be? I want to be an advocate. I want to further express that feeling, that, that fire inside about caring for others about justice. And I doubled down on it and it was hard. Um, It wasn't easy, but sometimes things aren't easy. I'm sure you have, we all have our stories. So I like to say that to other women who may be, may have children, may be at different points of their lives. Oh, I love that. So when you were, let's say when you were five and people asked you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Was it that you wanted to be an attorney then, but then ended up taking a different path? Or at that point, you, you, you just had something else entirely in mind. Yeah, as a, as a thank you so much for that question. As a, it's you know, it's lovely to get these questions and to think about your your child self. Um, I think I was one of those ch- children, and we all know this child, the one who speaks up a lot, who expresses their ideas. Adults may say, "Hmm, that one's going to be a lawyer." I had, mm-hmm. I was ambitious, and I felt that I was important, and I think that my parents, you know, in the seventies, did a good job of inspiring that confidence and, yeah. and keeping up that confidence. But I think if you had asked me, I might've said I wanted to be president or something. Nice. I don't think I would have known, you know, <laughs> lawyer or various professions would be, but I, I knew I wanted to be somebody, somebody important. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the president thing isn't, isn't, that's like not a done deal, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I love that you say that because I, since I turned 50 this year, I, you know, I've been talking with friends about how, you know, life, we're on the upper floor and life is sort of unfolding now. And I think of uh, people like Nancy Pelosi are, I guess she's still the uh, House majority leader and how I believe, I think she has five children and didn't enter politics until her 40s. So, and, and I have skills to build shall I be Madame President, you know, and we we should be looking at learning and growing in that way. Yeah, I love it. And so it turns (laughs) out we were born the same year. Oh, hey, it was a good year. 1970. Good year. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous, fabulous. So, you know, you knew that you were going to be something. So what was the thing that you, when you left school, what did you do? What did you do leaving school? Um, you mean undergraduate or? or... Mm-hmm. Oh, well, tell us about undergraduate then graduate. Girl, I, it's funny because I just knew I was so interested in pop culture and music and entertainment. And I had grown up in Pittsburgh and I went to school in Connecticut. And I said, I'm going to go to New York City. If I can make <laughs> it there, I'll make it anywhere. And I'm going to work in media and entertainment when I was, I guess, 20, 21. And, and, and that's what I did. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fabulous. And so um, was it, was it that, so what was that turning point for you? You're in media and entertainment. That's a really, I mean, I think it's, it's super glamorous on the outside. Sometimes from what I hear, not as glamorous on the inside. Describe the experience of, of being in your twenties, being in New York, 
being in the media and entertainment industry, what was that like? Great question. You know, the 90s was, a, was you know, it turns out for, for us Gen X, now we're cool again, right? Everything 90s <laughs> is cool. It was it was a really interesting time for, for music and, and entertainment um, and in some ways, perhaps a simpler time than now. And it was a, it was a great time to be running around. Um, getting to meet, I did it. Actually, I did get to meet. I, I ultimately worked at MTV News nice. as um, as the talent coordinator of all things. I don't talk about this very much, actually. It's sort of, you know, from 1996 or something. Um, and I did. If I don't know if you remember, people like Tabitha Sorin, of course, Serena Alchul, John Norris, Chris Connolly, Abby Kearse. So I, I worked with with the folks at MTV and I did get to see, you know, a lot of stars and it was very exciting and felt very glamorous, you know, at the time. And I enjoyed that and it was fun. And, you know, it was also kind of gig economy, didn't make a lot of money, very competitive, very challenging. I think that's probably still the case. Um, but I think that the takeaway, it's interesting because I still do media because of that love of wanting to, to communicate. Um, but I, I don't regret any of it because again, it was that following that passion, you know, about, you know, how can I make a difference? Who can I be? The, how can I be the person that I want to be? Yeah. And so here you are, you know, married and then separated and you decide, you know what, I'm going to be an attorney with this <laughs> two-year-old. I'm going to go to law school because that's not the most challenging thing I can do. <laughs> law school by itself is not hard enough. <laughs> with a two-year-old as a single mom so, so tell us about do you do you remember the moment in which you made that decision and what you know what was going through your head was it just like what was going through your head you know what I will I'll actually thank you for asking and I think it was I was I had, I was working for, and I love working with youth and doing youth development. And I had taken a job that was kind of a temporary job and it was winter time. It was like January, you know, not, not where you are, but where I am in New York, it gets cold, like cold, like really in a parking lot and it'll look like a freezing tundra. And somehow I had gotten to this point in this job where I was supposed to be doing like administration and stuff with the kids. And that was great. But I had, gotten in a place where I had volunteered or something and I was actually driving the after-school bus and I had actually been dropping all the kids off at their house and then I pulled in back to it with the bus you know boop, 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 under the garage and it was so cold and I looked around and I was like not that I have any driving a school bus that is an honorable profession I'm not trying to say anything about that but at, I said well how did I end up well, how is it that I'm here now in this freezing cold parking lot, having been the, the actual driver for the after the bus driver <laughs> for the after school program? And I was like, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm like, I'm not sure if this is what I be want to be doing and who I want to be. And I think I want to take a new direction again. No disrespect to anybody who who drives a bus. And I drove a bus, right? I was driving a bus. <laughs> And I said, but that doesn't mean I always have to drive a bus. Right. It was literally the moment when I was like, you know what? I'm dusting off those applications. I'm putting those applications in. I don't know if I can afford it. I don't know if I'll get financial aid. I don't know how I'll do it. But if I don't put the application in, I'll never know. 
Wow, wow. That, you know, I remember as a as a child, there was this, there was this um thing where um this woman jumped in front of a car or jumped over a fence to save her child from something. And it was like all over the news and we were talking about it. And it was just sort of like she found strength she didn't know she had in order to save her child. And my best friend and I at the time asked her mother, um, you know, have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever, you know, jumped in front of, uh, jumped over a fence to, to, to save a child or anything like that? Like somehow got superhuman strength. And she said, you know, when my husband died and I had the four of you, you know, that was me digging deep into my superhuman strength and, and just because she was a housewife and having to find a career to take care of these four kids. And we looked at her and like, well, that's not it. <laughs> and just, just, as kids, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, you've totally missed the point of the question. <laughs> You're like, whoa, no, we thought, you know, we want to see jumping. We want to see. Yeah, actually, we want to see, you know, you scale to the top of a tree to save a child. <laughs> oh my God, recovering from the death of your husband with four small children. And the funny thing is, it isn't until you get to that point in your life where you're looking after somebody else that you realize what a superhuman feat it is to embark upon a journey where you're entering into the unknown, especially with a two-year-old, when you don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know how you're going to afford it. You don't know what's on the other side of that door, but you know there is potentially a better future for you on the other side of that door and you're just willing to open it and you don't know what you're going to have to go through. Can I, can I say that, that I'm glad you mentioned that because that was the other part of why I went to law school and I love that question because they're like you didn't jump up on a tree to save them kids and what they don't get is that them kids ate that night and they <laughs> ate the next day and they went to school and they were held safe. They don't understand how it is. Yeah. And actually it was speaking to a, a very good friend, someone who's still a, a dear, dear friend who, um, um, who is all, who, well, she is an attorney. She was an attorney at the time and I was not. And I asked her as part, I was like, wow, this, to your point, I said, wow, I, how am I going to be a single mom? Like, does this mean that I, you know, that this idea of I've had of a middle-class life for my child is just not going to happen? Like, how can I do mm. this by myself? Yeah. And that was what she said back. She was like, Psh. yes, you can, you can, you can go back to law school. You, you, you can, you can, you can, you can make this happen. Uh, you can. And um, I, I think about that moment all the time, because that was the twin moment to be in an <laughs> watching <laughs> the school bus is when another woman a good dear friend who was already a lawyer was like you can do this and and she was right so you're you're entering law school so what was your what was your support system like you know you get into law school what tell me about that process no i think that that's that's also important because you know, you can't sort of, sometimes it, to make something pencil out, you have to make sacrifices or lifestyle decisions. Um, and one of the ones that I made was to live with my mother and father. And I was very fortunate that my mother and father were, um, were there for me, you know? And so really it, during that period, when I was 
I live in New Rochelle, which is just north of New York City, and I went to Fordham Law School, which is, you know, kind of in midtownish in Manhattan. And, you know, when I went to class and I was in class at four o'clock, you know, my mother or father would pick my daughter up from, you know, from the after school program. Maybe they <laughs> they had to drive the, not the bus, but the car. And and they did a they did a lot of that. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, they were there for me. And I kind of chose a, you know, a different life path um because of that, you know, or, you know, that's just sort of you know, and, and now I, I live with my parents to this day because um, now we're at a different stage where, yeah. you know, they need more help. So yeah. life, definitely a lifestyle, you know, choice. Yeah. And you, you, you have to take you have to take tough decisions, you know, about your life and about the kind of life that that you want. So would you say when your friend said to you, you can do it, that was the best advice you had gotten or? Or was there, what was the best advice that you've received? Hmm, it's like a, it's funny. I don't think I really, at that time, I'll say, I'll, I don't know if I got this advice, but I think I did to a certain extent, but it's certainly one, I'm interested in your thoughts when Pete, when younger people or people who are thinking about becoming lawyers uh, decide or ask me whether or not they should, or how should they go about mm -hmm. that? Um, and one is, is that it's great to become a lawyer, but only if you actually want to do what lawyers do, yeah. you know, which looks like it's, you know, being dramatic like Johnny Cochran on, you know, <laughs> on television or being on CSI, you know, doing all these maybe glamorous looking things in court. But it really means you have to be um, happy to do some reading the things nobody wants to read. <laughs> The things that everybody else gets to ignore that the lawyers have to, have to actually make sure doesn't say gobbledygook, gobbledygook. <laughs> exactly. All of the, the, a lot of research, writing, um, you know, long hours and sort of, I don't know what else to call it, but intellectual pursuit, often being a counselor, which is not the same as being, you know, that um, maybe you could be a business leader, but a lawyer is often a counselor. And I think the days of going to law school because it's a good degree to get and you can learn some good things and it'll be transferable are kind of over now because of how expensive law school is and how the job market can be very challenging. So that idea of wanting to, to um, really wanting to do what lawyers do um, because there are a lot of unhappy lawyers. And also yeah. someone flagged it a very unfortunate aspect of the legal profession, which is just the elitism mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, what you can expect, you know, that you, you may have different opportunities or barriers depending on what school you're able to go to. Yeah. And not everyone can go to Harvard Law School. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly didn't. I didn't, you know, I went to Fordham. I didn't go to an Ivy League school at all. So anyway. So you graduate from law school, um, and what kind of law did you plan to practice? It's interesting because in a slightly different world, I would have been a prosecutor. One of the things I did as a um, when I was in law school is I had an internship at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, oh, wow. and I'd actually, because of the work I'd done with women and children, 
um, I requested to be in the sex crimes unit because I wanted oh, wow. to see what it would be like to, you know, put put the bad guys in the jail. Yeah. And it's complicated, right? Because all of us, you know, it, it, the criminal justice system, you know, as we know, is is can be very unjust, in particular to you know black people, people of African descent, throughout the world, but in the United States. <laughs> um, but I will say that 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 sort of you know having you get a badge, like having that badge and being that authority and and walking in, you know, to ask someone who was you know accused of a terrible sex crime, mm-hmm. you know, with the force of the law behind you, it like spoke to a piece of my I don't know self righteousness or my sense of power in a way that was very compelling. Um, and also, I had gotten an internship um, at the to um, a summer associateship at, at a law firm um, of Dewey and LaBeouf, and. Mm-hmm be totally frank it when you are coming out of law school you're thinking about you know you've got this degree and you don't really know anything and you've got to find <laughs> you've got to find some training yeah know, a direction and I said I'm so compelled by this but I don't think that this criminal justice system with its sort of two sides is something that I want to go for and also it was I think that there definitely was a piece of me that wanted the training and the the financial opportunity that came with the Wall Street law firm at that and having gone through taking out all those loans having you know and so you're 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 a, a pretty mature intern at this point <laughs> <laughs> what was that like that is all and and that's the thing you know what it's interesting because and I hope anyone listening because at the time I did feel quite older than you know a lot of the other people but the truth was I was 33 34 like looking back I was very young (laughs) (laughs) so I I think that's something when I it's funny I think when one is younger one is more obsessed with this idea of getting old yeah I'm turning 20 I'm turning yeah. 30. Yeah. I'm turning no, my... 30. <laughs> and now, yeah, I'm like, I, I don't know about you, but for me, like 50 was like extreme excitement. I have <laughs> never been so excited about becoming an age. Never ever. So definitely I think you, you, the, the the age thing starts to fade away as you get older. Doesn't it feel good to be a, a full-grown woman, Auntie? It does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> I am loving this. I'm loving this side. I, I really am. I'm absolutely adoring it. So, so you're 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 interning, and then you get this amazing job with this wonderful Wall Street law firm. How then do you decide that you want to get into climate and activism? Is it something that strikes you straight away, or is it something that you know it's a slow burn? How does that happen? It's interesting. I think I always knew that I was interested, just from, you know, I studied human rights, you know, is when I had electives in law school, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I think this is something that um, I suspect you'll, you'll um, identify with what I'm saying, but I, infrastructure, oil and gas in particular, you know, kind of s- spoke to me in that context in terms of, you know, inequality, how is it that, you know, nations that produce so much of these valuable commodities you know, are, are yet so, you know, so poor. And I was, I found all of that fascinating. And, and also at this time is when everyone was talking about this clean energy revolution. And 
also I'll mention for folks out there who might be interested in climate and the environment, if you are interested in economics and technology in particular, then um, energy is can be just a very gratifying and, and sort of intellectually satisfying area because so much of it is about markets, economics, managed markets, commodities. Um, and so for me, I, I studied economics as an undergrad. Those things converged and kind of set me on the path to say, I want to work in the, you know, in the energy practice of this firm. I always knew that I wanted to be an advocate, but I also knew, well, that I, I as a lawyer, I was one, but you really do need to get training as an attorney, one way or the other, though, one way or the other, people do not have to go and work for a Wall Street law firm. And part of me wishes I felt like I did for the money and because of, of the prestige. Um, and that's what I did. And I guess I did get some money and maybe some prestige from that. But it's not the only path, but you do need to get some training. Um, and so ultimately, I did have an the seasons of my life turned and I um, actually the law 2008 financial crisis happened. <laughs> you know, the, the whole economy and industry was shaken up, but I was able to transfer a new, into a new season of becoming an environmental advocate from in the uh, uh, advocating for clean and renewable energy. Okay. And then, you know, what is the diversity like in that, in that, in that system? <laughs> <laughs> Were you it? <laughs> Pretty much it. Actually, there is uh, someone who was a mentor, um, um, also a, a, um, who was a, a um, who was from Trinidad and Tobago, who was a brilliant young partner, um, Andrianne Payson. Um, she was, she did be ultimately become a partner. She was there. She was in the oil and gas practice. I think she was the <laughs> She was the only one, and certainly, um, almost in almost every instance, in almost every room, in almost every deal, um, in almost every advocacy space. Since then, I have almost always been one of few women, and probably the only woman of color in in those rooms. It's starting to change a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and I say that because I would almost say it like, "Is anybody out?" <laughs> I am home. Oh, no, no. Do you exist? Exist, exist? But it's an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity because that space is so lacking diversity that those of us who don't look like or aren't aren't what is all almost only there, that those of us who aspire to those spaces should be should be eyeing those spaces as, hey, you should be looking for candidates like me. I, I I sigh because it's it's always a challenge. This is something you've probably you you may have heard before. Is that you know someone will look at you and say, "Well, I'm sure it's been easy for you. Everyone is <laughs> looking for a everyone wants is looking for a woman of color, a black woman, a this and that." And you know, isn't it easy for you? And 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 there is a real dissonance. Yeah. That we have to deal with in terms of showing up on the scene and being the only one and facing a lot of barriers, and yet you're like, but shouldn't there be a red carpet? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's according to the things I heard. There would be a red carpet out here for me, and there is not. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> an interesting point because I think that that that's true. That you know, you you expect that 
and everyone's always talking about diversity and inclusion, but then you face these enormous barriers. And even when you're in the spaces, um, I was talking to a woman recently and she was saying, oh, it was that cop, a lovely, lovely lady that I met randomly on the bus. And she said, you know, um, she, she was in, she was in um, financial services, um, working for a big hedge fund, I think it is. And she said, what you would expect is that we are increasing in diversity in this space. She said, but it's decreasing because once you're in this space, there are so many barriers that you face that women are leaving in droves. And she said, and it worries me deeply because I feel like things are tilting in the wrong direction. And I certainly think that it's important for us to recognize that while we seek to diversify many of these spaces, it is not an easy, easy journey by any means. But these are things that some of us have to take, have to take seriously and take the hit on because that is how we clear the path for the others who come behind us. I have to say that you're, I think, I think you're exactly right because one way, one way to look at it is that, you know, this call for diversity is only there because of, like you're saying, folks who've taken the hit, women like ourselves who have voiced, you know, our concerns and created a measure, a measure of mm -hmm. accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and every time you do so, you pay a little bit, you know, you walk mm -hmm. into, we've, it's been all of the women before us who walked into a room and said, I'm the only woman here. Do you understand that? That's a problem. Yeah. I'm yeah. the only person of color here. Do you see that? That's a problem. Yeah. And, and so basically saying that if, if there wasn't a problem, then <laughs> nobody would be saying all these things they say, and we still seem to be at that place in many industries where what the DEI really means is we're gonna, we need someone we can point to. I hate to say the word token, but yeah, still, you know, we've got to have at least someone we can point to that we're doing this. Um, and it still feels like we can be in that at that level. And so I say that so that folks can understand that the red carpet is not rolled out. Um, or in some instances, there, you know, organizations could really be trying, but yeah. I would really hope, especially younger women, to have to be open and clear-eyed yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, but but absolutely decisive about where you want to get to and understand that there are allies in the space and to look out for people who people both people who look like you and people who don't look like you because the strides that that you and I have been able to make. We haven't been able to make only because people like us helped us. Because this there part, were people, yeah, very because huge part. Yeah, because a lot of people, a lot of the rooms that we we have been in, and been the only woman and the only woman of color, it's because somebody else had had a light bulb moment and said, "Wait a minute, let me drag you in here." Or wait a minute, she's at the door. Let's open. So I think it's 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 looking at finding the opportunities in all spaces, but we being willing to struggle. You, you said you said something so important and we have the saying that, I hate to say this, that all your skin folk ain't your kin folk. <laughs> like, sometimes that one person, that one person you do see will not be an ally or a friend. And that's also something to be looking out for um, I think when I was younger, sometimes I was so eager to see, to find those allies and role models who look like me. And 
could be a little naive, frankly, about yeah. you know what position maybe they were in and what their inclination or intention may have been. But mm -hmm. this part exactly, um, when I was at the law firm and um, you know the financial crisis hit and the firm was in such trouble, it was a very senior, you know, white male partner who kind of looked at me and was like, we need to get her some billable hours for folks who are not in the profession. <laughs> you don't bill, you don't have a job. Yeah. Like, She's working very hard. And he, he was like, you know what we're doing? I know this is not a big client, but one of the consulting attorneys was, um, his name is Ashley Brown. And at the time he's now retired, but he was the forgive me, I'm trying to remember his title now, but I think he was like the director of the um, Kennedy School at Harvard's um, Energy Policy Center. So, wow. you know, a very prestigious energy policy center, and he needed to write some reports. Some clients wanted to hire him to write some reports. And the partner was like, Ashley, Ashley, why don't you work with Raya on your reports? Because, <laughs> you know, you don't want to do all the research, but like, to be honest. Why don't you why don't you work with Raya? And that turned into uh, me getting to co-author several pieces with some, you know, with a very um, you know, prestigious and brilliant um, you know, mind in the space. And I co-authored several uh, pieces about smart grid, about electricity. Um, I have some of these publications still here. Um, <laughs> and they, they really became a feather in my cap. And when I was looking to transition into the NGO field, I was able to say, you know, I have written this, you know, report on smart grid regulation and how, you know, to integrate clean energy into the 50 states. Like, so like, is that how you got recognized? <laughs> is that how you got recognized to serve on all of the boards? Ah, the, the, I think it's so important. I think there's so many phenomenal, phenomenal women out there and 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 men you know who are just not being recognized or sought after for board seats and i think it will be it would add so much to the ability to have governance to to have um diversity to have different lived experiences in these spaces and so i think i would hope that we can help different kinds of people getting elected to boards i i couldn't agree more um I, I think I, most of the, all of the, of the boards and advisories that I'm on are really NGOs, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, which is fine. Um, but it's sort of like a different board role, but also a good space, you know, to, um, to be on a board. And it was also another um, very esteemed older white male colleague um, who um, named Dick Ottinger who for a long time was a congressman for this area in Westchester and has several buildings at Pace University Law School named after him mm -hmm. um, um, and helped found this organization called the Energy and Environmental Study Institute. And I had been working with him on some international sort of law matters for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he's the one who was like, you know, Raya, I think you'd be great on the board of EESI. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in my head, I said, okay, but I've also said at this point, I'm not going joining boards where I'm the only brown person. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a brown person on there already, 
I'm not, I can't, I can't. can't. You know, I I do the same thing with a lot of like panels that I'm on. I'm all, you know, I, I think when people are like, oh, let's, let's get the woman. And I always say, I will not be the only woman, but I I don't mind being the first woman, but you'd have to commit to me that you're going to find at least another woman. And for me now, you know, especially I'm a little more sought after now than than at the time that I made that policy. But now I feel as though if you aren't making an effort to get to 50-50, if you're not showing me like I've invited this many women and this many men, then then certainly it's not something that's worth my time. And I I don't mind being the first, but but I, I cannot be the only. I think at this point that I think is a very... I think that's smart. That's advice I give to other women looking to serve on boards. I'm not saying that if you, you know, if you get an opportunity and you really feel like it's a great opportunity, you shouldn't take it. But um, there's definitely, we talked about that dissonance of entering a space when you're the only one and the barriers and, you know, how you sometimes do have to actually just take hits, be it to your own comfortability, smile when you really want to touch someone. And all all of that takes its toll. So it's like you have to choose for yourself how much of it, when, where, and when you're willing (laughs) to get involved in. For sure, for sure, for sure. All right. So I want to, I want to hear about how you ended up getting in trouble in, but not (laughs) going viral at Congress, having to testify before Congress. And how did you end up going viral? Well, thank you for, um, um, thank you for asking this question. And it really it was really interesting because it really did go viral. I mean, I was, it went viral all over the world and it was really fascinating to be the subject of that. Um, I, um, as an energy attorney, activist and expert, this was the second time that I've testified um, before Congress. Um, and this is the House Oversight Committee. Um, and they were having a hearing on big oil and gas, you know, fossil fuel lies and misinformation. I think a lot of us, some of us don't know that the big oil companies have known for over 50 years that the um, that the oil and gas they were going to burn or were burning was caught, was going to cause the climate crisis. And it's something that they keep quiet and actively sort of work to keep quiet and to sort of change the narrative to, to minimize that for a long time. And that's an important thing to think about when you're thinking about the climate change. So I was asked to come and talk about that in the context of environmental ju- justice. Um, and some folks may know, have you heard of Cancer Alley? I'm not certain. It sounds like something you that I... the opportunity to mention it. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a, it's actually not an alley, but it's, it's, it's sort of known as like a poster child of environmental injustice in the United okay. States. It is mm-hmm. in Louisiana. There's a 80 plus mile stretch of Louisiana that is so polluted from petrochemical refining, oil wow. and gas refining and petrochemical um, um, production that they call it Cancer Alley. You've got oh, wow. an intergenerational poisoning, mothers, fathers, uncles, aunties, children dying disproportionately of cancer because of all this pollution. Um, and it's really, it's one of the more prominent examples of environmental injustice in the United States that a lot of people are fighting you know, against this really terrible injustice. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, giving my testimony. And, you know, of course, when you go before Congress, you, you put on your, you know, you've got your suit and you're as august as you can be. And you're, you've got your notes and you are your expert self. 
And it was the congressman from Louisiana, mm. who is a ride or die for the oil or gas industry, saw a black woman with all types of frizzy hair and figured this was going to be his chance to, you know, get some score some points and get some fame. And the, the reason that I had to take him on the way I did. So he basically just started questioning me in sort of a silly, disrespectful manner. Um, asking me questions, you know, saying, you know, I'm an environmentalist because I care about my planet. Do you care about the planet, young lady? Like he called me young lady. He called me boo. Boo. This white man from Louisiana called me boo. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, it was a complete shocker. <laughs> because he was the congressman from Louisiana and I was there to talk about environmental injustice, I was particularly incensed that he would make light of this when it's his constituents that are being poisoned. Right. Yeah, like, and I'm dying. Dare he? Yeah. And so I just, he was playing this clown. And so I had to say to him, you know, if, if you care about God, you know, you care about your God and your planet, then you need to search your heart and think about repenting because your actions are killing the black and poor people of your own state. And the fossil fuel industry that owns your state is killing the natural world. And I had to tell him about himself. Now, it just so happened that um, AOC, um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, was mm -hmm. in the meeting that day. And because of you know her stature, she actually spoke up and said, that was a shame how you disrespected this witness. Um, you know, I apo she apologized to me. Mm -hmm. She called him out. And so the, between AOC you know, and, and this clown from Louisiana, <laughs> that is how it sort of whoosh ended up going viral to the extent that Tucker Carlson, I don't know if he's our, Tucker Carlson is- Oh, a, no, I know who Tucker Carlson is. And I think, um, well, people who watch Fox News or people who loathe Fox News would know who Tucker Carlson is. Um, yeah. So the end of that story is that <laughs> I have the honor of being, he actually invited that representative onto his show and they did a whole segment that was a takedown on me. Oh, wow. They, they edited the video to make it, you know, he'd asked me a question and my response was a moment of the video, like not saying anything, you know, called me un-American, called me a moron. And you know what? That's a badge of honor and I'll take it. But it, <laughs> and I, I, I got to tell him about himself, but it was also um, just clearly a moment of real disrespect, um, misogyny, racialized misogyny. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, I had, I, we're out of time, and I, I think <laughs> as much as I don't necessarily want to end on racialized misogyny, I will say that I was and continue to be inspired by your story about you know using your community and believing in yourself and pushing through, and not necessarily being one of those people who had it figured out at twenty and you know going through different paths. Because I think that we have such extraordinary leaders who are several places on their journey and haven't yet realized or haven't yet got up the gumption to say, I am going to go after it or feeling like at some point it is too late. It is never too late as long as you're breathing. So That's if you have a vision of yourself leading something in some way, go for it whether or not you use the time well it will pass 
So I love this idea of just having that aha moment and saying, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and fail or try and succeed, but I am going to try. So I'm super inspired by your story. And the fact that after, you know, an, an attempted humiliation from which you brilliantly recovered on an international stage <laughs> that you didn't just sort of slink into a corner and say, oh my gosh, you know, you, you said, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to allow this to further empower me on my journey and keep on going. But also I think the lesson that we learned here was that, you know, get yourself prepared and, and invest that time, not just in your education, but learning at a law firm and being willing to be seen and being willing to take the hits for those of us who come behind us. Because listen, it is never going to change unless we decide that we are gonna make it change. So, so it's, it's really up to us. Nobody is coming to save us. We have to save ourselves and save the others. So with that, I thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I thank you so much, Rhea, for, for sharing your story. And I have to, you and I have to get together over a cup oh, of coffee absolutely. and wine. <laughs> <laughs> and just and just have a chance to get together about some of the some of the challenges and opportunities in these unique spaces. Thank you so much for, for being with us again and listening. And if you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. You can find us just about anywhere that you can access a podcast, Apple, you know, Spotify, YouTube, what have you. And thanks again. Recommend to a friend. Thank you. Thank you.